Hi, and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who think it's 2018 and we shouldn't be treating diseases like it's 1950 anymore. My and name that includes is... that w- includes raw, raw water. Don't don't drink the raw water, people. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get immunized. Don't drink the raw water. Sanitation, Just... vaccines, the Kay. whole bit. Yeah. Modern Sorry. medicine. it's 2018 2018. we're moving forward yeah we're not we're not doing polio and e coli water anymore none of that we're progressive my name is karen ernst and i am the executive director of voices for vaccines and i'm nathan boonster i'm general pediatrician here at blank children's hospital in des moines iowa and uh, we are talking today about HPV and cancer and vaccines. And we will, in later in the program, we'll be talking to Tamika Felder, who is uh, the one of the co-founders of Survivor with a C, um, which advocates for you know awareness around cervical cancer. So we'll be talking to her in a little while. But first, I want to just um, before we do our around the web, I want to do a little few housekeeping things. Next month, we will be talking to Dr. Paul Offit, and he's going to be taking your questions in our Ask Dr. Offit episode. And so how do you get your questions to him? Well, there are several ways. First of all, you can join our Facebook group. Yes, we have a closed Facebook group. Just search in Facebook for Voices for Vaccines Discussion Forum and ask to join. Say that you heard about it on the podcast, and that's sort of an easy in. And you can... um, um, ask your question there. Yeah, that's or where all the cool people hang out. So there, please do there that. There are so many cool people there. Actually, there are a lot of cool discussions that happen there. It's sort of amazing. And the second place you can do you can go to our Facebook page and send us a message with a question for Dr. Offit, or you can email your message to info at voicesforvaccines.org. That's f o r vaccines.org, and just you know, say this is what I want to say to Dr. Offit, or this is my question I have for him. Um, it would be great if it could be vaccine related. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, ideally. I think, and I'm sure there will be many ideally. and varied and colorful in their content. Yeah. And so let's go ahead now and turn to Around the Web. Nathan, what do you have for us? Well, I was m- mulling over a few different articles to pick and the one I was most interested in was fairly recent. This was uh, uh, published in Mother Jones. It's called There is a Whole Cottage Industry of Doctors Helping Parents Skip Their Kids' Vaccines. Uh, in California, medical exemptions for shots are on the rise. This is by Joanna Nix. It's coming out in the January-February issue or is out online. And it goes into – it's a nice little read. It is – uh, it kind of goes through the history, starting with the Disney uh, measles outbreak and goes into SB 277, which I think everybody listening knows was the law in California that made uh, that got rid of personal belief exemptions so that California only allows medical exemptions and then looks at how those medical exemptions tripled following the passing of that law. So it, it did f- it phenomenally in terms of getting the immunization rates up for kindergartners, but then those medical exemptions increased, not on pace, not as many medical exemptions as there were personal belief exemptions, uh, uh, still a fraction of those, but but tripled. And you wonder, where is that coming from? Is this because I guess it's possible that people were who had medical exemptions just didn't bother to do the paperwork and then they got personal belief exemptions. So are we seeing the medical exemptions go up in response to that? Are they legit or not? And 
the evidence kind of says, no, these are probably not legit. Why? Because there's large amounts of clustering of these exemptions in certain areas. So it looks at like certain schools in which there are 10 or 20% of kids who have uh, medical exemptions and there is 0% chance that that many kids need medical exemptions to any vaccines in any school district. So um, it then looks at the rise of a group called, uh, and this is one of those extremely ironically named uh, groups that anti-vaxxers love, but it's called Physicians for Informed Consent, led by, can you guess who one of the founding oh, members is? Dr. Bob Karen? Sears. Y you're exactly right. Oh. So You know, the awful thing about that is Minnesota has a Dr. Bob, too, that's a lot like Dr. Bob Sears, and mm -hmm. he is a member of that crew, too. Yeah. And so, I was, yeah, I was looking it's not over there. California. I was looking over their founding members and and like their core group that's on their website, and it's a lot of the usual kind of quacks that we've seen before, um, and some new faces that I wasn't familiar with, um, and so it is uh, kind of talks about. So this person, this author of this article, did a little undercover work and and went to the website and saw some of the doctors that they listed as people who could help you get uh, an exemption. And um, then called up the clinic and said, well, what do I have to do to get an exemption? And they basically said, well, we're just going to do this genetic tests and we'll find something. And my own, and like the person that they talked to said, well, my own child has a thyroid condition and so-and-so doctor uh, gave us an exemption based on that. And, you know, they looked at it, you know, charging money and all that kind of stuff. So it's really interesting uh, article to look at how there is a network of unfortunately professional physicians uh, and pediatricians who are less than scrupulous when it comes to uh, ethics uh, <laughs> in terms of what they will do for money uh, in California. Yeah, that's that is really disappointing. Um, but also not surprising. No. And you know, as I'm, I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking about how uh, I saw some figures that uh, Mississippi, which of course has never had the personal belief exemption, mm -hmm. that their numbers for medical exemptions have also been rising mm -hmm. re in recent years. Sure. Um, and and it's and it's interesting because I even you know even in places where there are medical exemptions or I'm sorry non medical exemptions mm -hmm. um, like Minnesota I saw in a Minnesota mommy group on Facebook um, one woman talking about how her doctor circles the vaccines that they're o he's okay with them skipping and <laughs> I'm like you're what oh, you're okay. he's okay with you skipping them I mean I I never like to take anyone's word completely on what their doctor said to them right yes but i think there there's there are a lot of people out there who are operating less than that less than scrupulously less than ethically when it comes to immunizations and their patients um and you know i i, I know that there has to be some relationship built between parents and physician as far as listening to the parents and working with them and and you know keeping them on board and keeping them bringing their children into the doctor sure and i i'm all for that but on the other hand <laughs> i think there also has to be some amount of hey no the vaccines really are good though yeah and and you know having um the mthfr mm -hmm. genetic 
thing going on with you doesn't right. preclude you from being vaccinated. So yeah. that's uh, those conversations for a physician have to be done very delicately, and they mm-hmm. should be done um, with a lot of kind of your own hesitancy in that I'm willing to work with families and uh, and as I think people have been listening know like I see families that don't immunize their kids mm-hmm. when I have those conversations I I never enjoy breaking down vaccines and saying well this one's more important than this which is more important than this but if I have a family that is hesitant and really not willing to immunize on time I load that conversation with a lot of, I think you should immunize on time. I think that this is important. I think this is important. But if you're, you know, if we're not, if we're not going to be able to come to that decision, why don't we do this? And let's think about this. And I'm most worried about whooping cough right now at this age. And I try to work with them, but I'm always hedging that with, but the best thing to do is to immunize your child on time. <laughs> the yeah. best thing is this. The safest thing is this. And oh, by the way, if you're not going to do that, I'm going to have you sign this waiver that says right. you understand that I think you should immunize your child on time and that you're putting your child at risk. Yeah, that, sh- that should at, at minimum that should be clear. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to point out one thing when I went to, when I talk about the irony of the name Physicians for Informed Consent, you know, when you go to their website, it is entirely about, like the homepage is all about SB277, all about this mandatory vaccine law in California. It talks about the work that they've done on it. It talks about how they've helped families, you know, basically in not so many words, it says, yeah, we help families get medical exemptions that they shouldn't have. We help physicians give them medical exemptions that they shouldn't give. But then when you go to the website or the Facebook page, guess what the vaccine that they address for the like top six posts right now on their Facebook pages? It's the one we're going to be talking about today. It's HPV. That has zero to do with uh, SB277. It's not required for anything. So, I, yeah, it's pretty clearly an anti-vaccine site dressed. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it's all this, you know, stuff that, that they think is bad about the, the HPV vaccine and all that. It's, it's pretty clearly an anti-vaccine site dressed up as an informed consent site, which okay. is basically how the way this group works. Well, and, you know, you can tell when something's purely anti-vaccine when they're talking a lot about HPV in the context of school requirements Uh because they probably don't actually have any idea what's required for their state (laughs) because they're against all of them. It's just bad. (laughs) They're, they're just bad. Don't do any of them. You know, um, whereas when I walk into my pediatrician's office, he knows exactly what's required for school entry. And he knows that I'm going to ask for extra vaccines on top of all of (laughs) what he wants to give me. So, (laughs) All righty. Well, I'm going to um, sort of be a damper right now, talk about um, what I found on the web, um, which is important this time of year. Uh, yeah. That's, I found, a, yeah, I found a mother uh, who is a physician, and her four-year-old died on Christmas Day mm. from influenza. So his name is Leon Sidari, I believe. His mother's name is Laura. And uh, I'm just going to read what she wrote because it's it's painful and it's beautiful and uh, my heart just goes out to her. She writes, My beautiful, healthy, vibrant four-year-old passed away on Christmas Day from flu. Leon was sick for less than 24 hours before dying. He had never had a serious illness in his life, 
but he had not had his flu shot. He was supposed to receive it this week. It is the most helpless feeling in the world, being a physician mom and seeing that nothing else can be done for your baby. For my fellow physicians, friends, and family, I ask that you consider donating to his memorial fund, which will be focused on providing families with sick children assistance at Christmas time. You are welcome to share my post on your personal pages as well. I'm just going to stop. Her name is Laura Therese, so um, I'll, I'll put this in the show notes. Okay, she goes on. There is emphasis in medical training on flu killing the very young, very old, and immunocompromised. However, it also kills the healthy and strong, and it can kill them fast. Please continue to fight to convince your patients to get the flu shot. According to the CDC, 80 to 90% of children who die from flu-related complications did not have their flu shot, and those children are often kids like Leon. Hug your babies tight. Please use Leon's story to encourage your patients, family, and friends to get the flu shot. I am thankful for this wonderful community to share Leon's message and legacy. So, um, it, it, that it, it really is heartbreaking, and it's it's so hard that he was scheduled to get the vaccine and didn't. Um, and and you know I can I talked to um, I talked to physicians and to nurses who work in hospitals all the time and Mm. and they say you know all of all of our kiddos in the the you know the um pick you are unvaccinated with and they're in for the flu um i mean i'm I'm sure that's your experience too that that is usually Um, how it is um and we see that in the studies that we've talked about before there's so many layers to the heartbreak here um, for me to hear that as a physician and as a parent, mm-hmm. you know, l- like her, I get my kids their flu vaccine. Like her, I'm busy, and mm-hmm. it could have happened to me, you know, mm-hmm. to to not get the, the vaccine on time uh, or to put that off. There's so many things to, you know, you have a healthy kid. You think that, you know, it is true that a healthy kid, the, the chance of a really horrible outcome from influenza is low. So you may not have that on the top of your priority list. Um, and that's understandable. Um, but her messages that she's putting out there, there are several of them that are worth taking to heart. The first is that influenza can kill a healthy child. It absolutely can, and a great uh, percentage of the deaths that we do see are in kids that do not have other underlying uh, significant contributing illnesses. Um, also, that it it does, you know, getting it done in a timely fashion is essential, so don't put it off. Get it done. You and I are always talking about how we make sure that by November we've got them on board. I think that's what you've always said to Karen. Um, and... Um, yeah, that everybody who can get the flu vaccine should. Uh, and then there's also, if you want to, um, there's, I, if you, I can't remember if you mentioned, but there's the, there, she has the GoFundMe now that she's just trying yeah. to raise money to help, uh, support sick kids, um, uh, kind of in his name, in honor of, of him. Right. Yeah. It's not their wonderful. personal fund. It's, it's, mm-hmm. they're working to set up a nonprofit, I believe. You know, one, one related issue to this too is that one of the things sort of floating around when people hear this story they'll they'll say oh but you know doctors are my doctor told me that the vaccine's only 10 percent effective this year and I, I feel the the need 
to say that nobody knows how effective the flu vaccine is yet. Mm-hmm. That that's those numbers start coming in this month, and then ACIP yep. addresses it in February. And so, if anyone tells you before February how effective the flu vaccine is, they are either looking into a crystal ball, yep. um, they're talking to a psychic, or they're making it up. And the real problem there is the news reporting. Because mm-hmm. the news reporting uh, headlines are saying, experts are warning flu vaccine can't, is only may only be 10% effective this year. No experts are warning that. They are not. Okay, what they are reporting is that on one predominant strain in Australia last flu season, which can predict this flu season, and we use the, I believe we're using the same vaccine. That's the pattern that it goes. We're using the same vaccine that they're using. Um, uh, although I could be wrong on that. The, the that strain is um, that that one particular predominant strain. It was 10% effective against last year. That does not necessarily predict a that it's only going to be 10% effective in the United States against that strain. It does not predict that that is going to be the predominant strain. Although I believe it is showing to be thus far. I will say anecdotally, I've seen a lot of uh, a lot of a. Uh, it came on strong last week. Last week, I saw five kids in a day that all had influenza A. They were all sick. None of them had their flu vaccine. Um, oh, man. So it is, you know, from my own ane- anecdotal uh, experience, the the kids that are getting influenza and getting sick are the ones that are unvaccinated. And also worth mentioning that studies continue to show that if you're immunized and you do get influenza, you still are getting some protection from that vaccine. It's still helping you fight and is likely to reduce your chance of complication, uh, including death. Uh, so there's no reason to not get the, the, the vaccine. Don't don't pay attention to headlines. <laughs> uh, do, uh, do what the CDC recommends. And they actually, the CDC does have on its website, uh, uh, they, they address the 10% myth. Yeah. I've, I've uh, got that up if you'd pages. like me to read it. That would be great. Would you? Would you like... <laughs> I would love to read that. Okay, let me get my reading voice out. Some new some news reports have claimed the flu vaccine is expected to be only 10% effective this year. Is this true? The 10% vaccine effectiveness figure reported in the news is an Australian interim estimate of the vaccine's benefit against one flu virus, the H3N2 virus, that circulated in Australia during its most recent flu season. In the United States last season, overall vaccine effectiveness against all circulating flu viruses was 39%, and vaccine effectiveness was only a bit lower, 32%, against H3N2 viruses. Vaccine effectiveness against other flu viruses, i.e. H1N1 or B viruses, was higher. The United States has a very robust network that estimates vaccine effectiveness each season. This season's flu vaccine includes the same H3N2 vaccine component as last season, and most circulating H3N2 viruses that have been tested in the United States this season are still similar to the H3N2 vaccine virus. So I'm just going to stop there because it goes on for quite a while. But uh, so, yeah, there it it. <laughs> the CDC, that's not coming from the CDC, that 10% figure. Mm-hmm. It's not coming from, you know, a- anything other than people, you know, scrambling mm-hmm. to say something. Yeah, and they're looking at data that they have and trying to make predictions based on it, but they're mm-hmm. not necessarily messaging it accurately. 
you know, obviously it's worth kind of looking at what is the vaccine doing in in the southern hemisphere and whatnot. But uh, that is not it, it, one of the the pitfalls of that is that then it's announced, oh, it's going to be a good year, it's going to be a bad year, and people's behavior right. uh, will change based on that, and then that can affect whether it's a good year or a bad year. <laughs> so you're saying it's going to be a really bad year for influenza, and then everybody comes out and gets a flu vaccine, and then maybe influenza is not so bad, and then suddenly everyone's like, eh, the news reports are wrong, why should I get my flu vaccine when they say that? Mm-hmm. Just get your flu vaccine because it's recommended every year. Get yeah. it done. Tell your friends and family, get it done. Just do it. Okay, should we turn to HPV? Let's turn to HPV. Okay, so the human papillomavirus, mm. right? I uh, I had something really wonderful and unexpected happen to me last week. Um, I had posted weeks ago something on Facebook um, I don't remember where it came from. Someone had asked me a question, and I was like, listen, you're going to ask me if you should get your HPV vaccine. <laughs> I'm going to say yes, uh-huh. and here's why. Uh, and a friend of a friend saw that and sent me a, a message on Facebook saying, I had turned down this vaccine for my son because, you know, I figured he didn't have a cervix, so he didn't need it. Um but now I read this and I'm, I read what you wrote and I'm thinking maybe he should get it, which was like the most wonderful feeling in the world to me. So now she's planning on getting her son, hmm. who's still a you know, kid at home, uh-huh. the HPV vaccine, uh, just because now she understands that the cancers it causes are bad uh-huh. and that it's a safe vaccine. And that's all, that's all she needed to know. So I just kind of want to go through with you. Uh, what cancers can be caused by the human papillomavirus? So, you know, the most common one that we talk about is cervical cancer. That's the one that is probably the best studied. It's the one that has the most data. It is uh, a major cause uh, in terms of mortality of women. So there are or have historically been about uh, 4,000 deaths from cervical cancer a year. There's been 25 or so thousand cancers, uh, cervical cancers in women a year. There's been all, you know, up in the hundreds of thousands of precancerous lesions and whatnot that need to be removed. So that is a big chunk of the morbidity and mortality of HPV. Then when we start talking about uh, males, we talk a lot about the head and neck cancers. Now, of course, head and neck cancers can be caused by HPV in both males and females. But when we talk about the cancers are caused by males, that is... um, uh, that that is a large chunk of those are head and neck cancers. There's some other relatively small in number cancers that are going to include your that are going to include anal cancers, penile cancers, and vulvar cancers. Um, but really, we talk a lot about the cervical cancer and the head and neck cancer uh, when uh, we talk about kind of the big the bulk of the mortality and morbidity with these. Uh, I often make the point, and I've probably said it on this podcast, that a lot it, a lot of people tend to think that uh, HPV vaccination is a vaccine largely for women, uh, mm-hmm. and it kind of helps guys, but it's really about cervical cancer. And when you really look at the numbers, that's not necessarily ca- the case. A good third of the cancers that are caused by 
uh, HPV are in males. And so this is something that is just as important to get for guys than, as it is for girls. Uh, it's not just a little bit, a little sliver of benefit for guys. It's not given to guys just to prevent transmission to girls either. It is for, uh, is for males and females, both to prevent cancer in both groups. Right. And and it has some benefit beyond cancer, too. Um, correct me if mm-hmm. I'm wrong, but genital warts are right. certainly something worth preventing. Yeah. They're a major, they, they, they're a serious effect on uh, quality of life. Um, so, and, and it's interesting, sometimes you'll talk, I'll talk to an adolescent who will not really think about the cancer side of it but when i say you know this prevents warts on your genitals then they're like yes okay that that <laughs> i don't want to get i will get this vaccine you know and that's actually it's interesting too the adolescents aren't thinking about you know in 20 years i could get you know throat cancer um but the parents aren't really thinking that either you know when i i read about little leon and the, the mm. flu vaccine you know if you don't get your kid a flu shot your child could have serious consequences in right now you know your child could go to school someone could cough on him he could come home get everyone else sick it it could it could it could go downhill from there um so people you know get serious about getting their flu vaccines but with the hpv vaccine even saying to a parent you know get your child this vaccine so that in 20 years Mm -hmm. they don't get cancer that's That's a hard sell. How do you handle that as a pediatrician? Well, that is hard for parents to wrap their heads around, but it is also hard for providers to wrap their heads around, especially pediatricians who are used to ta- to um, you know taking care of kids and thinking about childhood diseases, that we have to think of adult diseases. Now, we do that in other areas of our practice. You know, we're constantly... Um, talking about diet and exercise and other healthy habits with kids, not because we think that they're going to necessarily get heart disease in their teens, but because we don't want them to get, we want them to be healthy, successful adults. So we, th- we have the capability to think long term, um, but we uh, don't always, I think when it comes to some of these vaccines, the ones that are preventing disease now, we're really all about because we don't want these diseases to spread. And then I don't think we get as enthusiastic about the HPV. And when I say we, I mean, not you know most of the physicians that I get to interact with we're all getting very enthusiastic about this vaccine but I think we know just from data that out there there's a fair amount of hesitancy both in terms of parents and in terms of providers and that probably has not a lot to do on the provider part in terms of of safety it has to do a lot about uh, with providers in terms of Am I, what kind of conversation am I going to have with this parent? Is this parent going to uh, be hesitant about this? Uh, what kind of talk about sex am I going to have with this parent? And it, providers that aren't confident in that and that don't know how to uh, present it and don't know all the facts about necessarily about the vaccine uh, are not as good at recommending this vaccine as others. And so that's what we do a lot is try to educate providers. I don't think it's as hard to talk to parents as providers think it is uh, because everybody wants to prevent cancer and virtually every parent has kind of a connection to cancer and a a lot of them 
have a connection to, to the HPV cancers uh, in some way, know somebody. Uh, so I don't think it's too difficult to make that connection, uh, to, for that to connect in parents' minds. Um, and the, there's actually one really interesting study that I love to, to bring out that looked at, this gets complicated even for me to say, but it looks at parent perception of adolescent vaccines, including the HPV vaccine. And then it looks at the medical provider's perception of the parent's perception mm -hmm. of these vaccines. <laughs> and whereas the parents pretty much rated them all equally important, the physicians or the providers were kind of like, well, they think that the Tdap is important and they think the, the meningococcal is important, but they don't think that HPV is as important. And they were wrong. So don't make that assumption about your your uh, patients. And then at the same time, I say, parents, you know, if you're if you have an 11 or 12 year old and your physician has not brought it up, you may have to actually bring it up yourself. That happens and, and do that because it's important. Oh, that's hard. I know, par I, I know as a parent, when you go into your pediatrician, you don't want to you rock the boat. <laughs> you sure. Be, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, because, you know, you, 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 the relationship with your pediatrician is a two way street. So, you know, you, you don't want to displease your pediatrician either. This is the person who saw you bring in your child as a baby and, mm -hmm. you know, be like, how do I work this thing? And give you all the advice on it. So you don't want to be like, hey, why haven't you recommended this vaccine sure. for my kid? Um, but it is important. Yeah, It's just as important as having conversations about, you know, HPV with our kids and all of those hard conversations. All of those conversations are, are very important. So those are the HPV cancers in theory and how we talk about them. But I really want to hear a story from someone who knows intimately what HPV cancers are like. So when we come back, we will be talking to Tamika Felder, who is a cervical cancer survivor. Okay, we are joined now by Tamika Felder. Uh, just a little introduction uh, for Tamika. Tamika is the founder of an organization called Survivor that's spelled with a C, C-E-R-V-I-V-O-R. And she is an HPV uh, cervical cancer survivor. And she's also a documentarian and broadcast journalist and an author and apparently an 80s movie aficionado. So hi, Tamika, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. And I just want to talk to you a little bit about your cervical cancer story. Um, and it, it's part of, the, of course, the larger story of your life. But you were diagnosed pretty young with cervical cancer. Is that correct? Yeah, I was diagnosed when I was 25 years old in 2001. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> what What is happening to me? And unfortunately, I was one of those women who was not going in to get screened. So I have what I call my 11th commandment that women, especially over the age to get vaccinated, should always be um, screened. Um, so when I did go in... Um, and I wasn't going in previously because for just a few reasons. One, I had a freelance gig in Washington, D.C. that I love, but it didn't offer health benefits. Um, I was 25. So, of course, you think you're invincible. Nothing can happen to you. You're resilient. You fall down, break a limb, uh, whatever. You know, you get it fixed, pop it back in place. It's all good. 
and being um, a plus size woman, I had body image issues. You know, I had a doctor that wasn't too kind to me the previous time that I, a year that I had went, moved to a new city. So I was still struggling to find the right fit of um, a care provider. Now, these are all excuses that we can make for ourselves. But the point is, I wasn't getting screened. And had I gotten screened, maybe they would have caught it early. Um, my outcome would have been different. I'm happy because I'm still here. There are women who still die from cervical cancer, unfortunately. I know that we're all working to change that. So I'm lucky that I still have my life. I went through a radical hysterectomy, chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and overall, I'm doing really well. I suffer with ringing in my ears from the cisplatin, a little lymphedema issues here and there, um, bone loss. But overall, I am doing well. And I'm thankful for the stellar treatment that I was given at Johns Hopkins. But I also know that cervical cancer, specifically HPV, has totally changed my life. And I want to do something to make a difference because I still have my life. Right. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's just shocking at age 25 to have to be faced with those decisions. I'm wondering, you were very young. How difficult was it to make the decision about your care? How hard was it at that age to decide to have a hysterectomy and to, to try to figure out how to save your own life? I have to tell you, aside from the loss of my parents, it's the most difficult thing that I have literally ever done. I, I remember when they told me that I needed a, a hysterectomy and I thought they were crazy. And I said, no, no, I'm going to go see someone else. And I sought the second opinion of 10 different doctors. Now at 42 years old, I know that I was looking for someone to tell me, you know, the nine other doctors got it all wrong. They didn't know what they were talking about. And that literally I would not have to give up my womb my fertility at 25 but sadly I did and I remember um, the nurse calling and saying hey we need to schedule this and I kept putting it off and finally the doctor he picked up the phone and he called me he was like look if this is what you're going through you need to get this taken care of right away and I'm very thankful to Dr. Robert Bristow who literally you know I'm a faith person I believe in God but I also believe that this man and Everyone else that had any part in my surgery, uh, Rick Montz, um, saved my life um, because I've had m just minimal issues since my diagnosis 16 years ago. But it was literally hard. And I will tell you, a decade plus later, I still mourn for the child that I will never have. Now, I know that there are other ways that I can be a mom, like I'm a stepmom and I enjoy it and I love this child like she is my own. But at 25, it was a very hard pill to swallow. Yeah, absolutely. You know, at that young age, you just don't know what your future holds. Um, and you probably had a vision for what you thought it was going to be and to have to alter that I imagine was very painful. Oh my God. I literally was one of those people like, you know, by this age, I want to do this. By this age, I want to do that. By this age, I want to do that. And cancer came into my life and completely changed it. And I remember when I got the okay that, you know what, we've gotten all the cancer. There's no evidence of disease. You can go forth, live your life. And I thought, okay, I am going to pick up the pieces right where I left off, but I couldn't do it. 
And I think that's what people don't understand most about a cancer diagnosis. I think family and friends, coworkers, whomever outside of the initial impact, they think, okay, you don't have cancer anymore. You can go back to your old life. And it's why I struggle so much with uh, the term new normal. And I totally understand it because Everything is new, but nothing is normal in a sense of what was previously normal to you. And so a lot of people truly struggle with putting their life back after cancer. And what helped me heal was um, jumping, literally jumping into advocacy and realizing that I could do something to make a difference. And I also had a gift to train other women, other patient advocates, how to use their story and make it count to make a difference. When we talk about advocacy, particularly for the HPV vaccine, we uh, talk about a lot of the barriers that we run into um, in terms of communicating to providers and communicating to parents. What do you find are the biggest barriers and what do you find that works or at least that seems to work for you in the efforts that you've done? So I would say the biggest barriers are that people think that their story can't make a difference. Um, That's one. Two, that if it's HPV related, they don't want to touch it because they feel like they will be scrutinized by family and friends and they are ashamed. And so we have this campaign called Shame Resilient, where we have women share their scars or share them wearing their lymphedema garments. And there's a quote um, about kind of what they're feeling in the photo. And we have in big letters, shame resilient, you know, a lot of Brene Brown there um, teaching, you know, women and now men um, not to be shameful of their cancer diagnosis and kind of take that and turn it into something powerful. So so definitely there is a barrier when it comes to how the general public feels about people who have HPV, which I, this is when knowledge is power. The you, you know, you know better, you do better. And mm-hmm. I want people to understand, you know, that 80% of the population has the human papillomavirus. This is something that when people are sexually active, everyone is going to be exposed to it. And so um, the stigma really is silly and it needs to go away. As a pediatrician, uh, I also want to make sure that this disease is destigmatized. Do you have, in your experience or with the people that you've talked to, what do you, what kind of message do you want to give to providers, pe- pediatricians, uh, adult physicians, and, and whatnot, medical care providers, in terms of how they should approach HPV and how they can help destigmatize uh, this, this condition? So I'm taking my kid gloves off. Mm-hmm. Go. <laughs> I, I I want pediatricians to do their job. I want them to do what they were trained to do. I want them to provide um, the most current and the best resources for the children that they are caring for. I want them to let the parents know that the pediatricians are doing the job and they care for the child as much as the parents do. I think we live in this culture now where the HPV vaccine came out and, you know, it was just a muck. It was a mess when it came out. Sure. Um, it was, you know, I work in media and it was a media 
poop storm, you know, (laughs) you know, I will censor myself there. Um, And, and I think the pediatrician said, you know what? I want no part of this. Some pediatricians, not all, but let me, let me back off of this because parents are really like, they are not happy about this vaccine. And I think now, okay, we've had enough data. We know enough. The research is there. Let's make sure that no one dies from this disease. I mean, September of this year, I lost a woman who, um, in her 30s, and leaves behind a 14-year-old and a 5-year-old. I just went to go visit her family. Um, and, and it's just difficult. I, there's another woman, um, a couple of women who are on clinical trials. They're living their lives with cancer. And this is not an easy cancer because that's the other thing. People think, oh, if you're going to get a cancer, get cervical cancer. And, and I think it's because a lot of people aren't sharing their stories. So they don't know people who've had it. And so they don't know the experiences that women go through who've had cervical cancer. And I'm, I'm actually glad that now we're talking more about vaccinating boys. We're talking about how men are affected with HPV-related cancers. Um, dare I say it, that um, we are normalizing somewhat cervical cancer. There is still a stigma there. But we have to talk about these oral cancers. We have to talk about, you know, vulva cancer, vaginal cancer, anal cancers. I mean, penile cancer, you know, where it is rare, but they do happen. And so I, I, I think that we'll eventually get there. We know with breast cancer, it took a while. The difference here is that the numbers are not the same. Um, But I would like, you know, when we talk about that, there's, you know, 13,000, you know, women who get diagnosed with cervical cancer every day. As a patient advocate, my job is I want to find those women. I want to find their family members and I want them to share their stories. And advocacy comes with different levels of sharing your story. I think sometimes people look at me and what a few other people are doing and they're like, I can't talk to that many people. I can't talk on a big stage. But what you can do is partner with your local immunization, your local ACS, your you know local government-run um, vaccination programs, your local pediatrician. Um, there, there are definitely things that people can do. And we're at a place right now where it's grassroots. It's all boots on the ground. And we need everyone involved. I think what was the turning point for me was that when I realized, you know, for however long we've wanted as a population to win the war on cancer. And while the science every day is changing and it's so incredible, but with HPV, we can currently do something. There, there are things that we had. And so me, who doesn't have a science background at all, when I realized just as this individual that we have diagnostic tools, we have a vaccine, we have an incredible opportunity to wipe out HPV-related cancers. How can you not want to be a part of that? How can you not want to, you know, do your part? I have a great friend, Johnny Emmerman from Emmerman's Angels. He's a testicular cancer survivor. He talks about giving back um, as, you know, the world is filled with all these little cracks. And sometimes we get, you know, really excited and we just want to, you know, take on the world and fix it however we can. But what would be cool is if, you know, each person took a crack and filled it 
And so my little part of doing good in this world is I want to fill the crack and helping to get people talking about HPV related cancers, get support for people who have HPV um, related cancers and, and stop the stigma because I really do believe that the stigma hurts the prevention of these cancers because there's still this, this, this overwhelming group of the population who think that won't happen to me. That won't happen to my kid. And it makes me cringe when, you know, just yesterday, someone wrote on one of our social media pages, I asked my pediatrician for the HP vaccine. My pediatrician said your kid didn't need it yet. <laughs> and, it's, and, and it's so upsetting to me. Yeah. Because that's 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 a stereotyping as it is. So this family's okay. You don't know what that kid's gonna do. No. We know kids are having sex younger and younger. You know, I have a teen daughter. I cringe when I t- you know take phones and look at Snapchats and text messages and things like that. And they talk about things and they're curious and it doesn't mean they're bad kids, but they live in a world, they grew up in a generation where everything is, you know, in access to them. I think about the Twilight series that I love so much. I was watching it with my stepdaughter last night. And, you know, there's one thing with me watching it as an adult. Now I'm watching it with her and i'm like this thing is highly sexual (laughs) (laughs) and she's talking about oh it's turning he's trying to turn her on or she's turning him on and i was like wait what do you know what that means and she was like of course i know what that means so these are things that we need to do to protect protect them when they are sexually active yeah i think that uh, i mean i have similar conversations with my preteen as well so i think i'm hopeful that most parents are uh, are becoming aware of that as their child is of the age to receive the vaccine um and right. i'm hopeful that, that awareness helps parents realize that that we're recommending this for the reason it just makes me shudder when you when anytime anybody mentions that that a provider didn't say that a child needed that vaccine i i uh, it makes me want to smash something right Right. You know, and I'm also wondering, too, because I've actually had that experience, too, Nathan, where I've had friends come back from their child's 11 or 12 year old well child check. And they say to me, oh, my kid got both of their vaccines. I'm like, oh, you mean all three? <laughs> right. Oh, I'm like, mm. oh, your kid needs to go back. Yeah. And I send them back. Um it, but, uh, you know, sometimes we were talking about before how sometimes you, the parents really have to advocate for that. So I'm wondering, Tamika, what is your main message to parents of preteens and teenagers? You know, my, my main message is that HPV does not discriminate. It can happen to anyone. So here are the facts that you need to know. And I find that most parents when you break it down for them and they understand what the facts are and you provide them with a credible, I'm going to say that again, a credible resource, they get it. They totally get it. Now there are some parents, they just believe what they believe. They don't care what you think. And this is how they feel about it. And that's it. And that's their right as a parent. Okay. I don't agree with it. But that's their right as a parent. I mean, we do a survivor school training where we actually have a retreat where we train women how to share their stories effectively. And we had a woman there um, recently um, at our school this summer in Florida. She was 
an anti-vaxxer. I didn't know that going into the school. It's funny. We had this application. They go through all this stuff. Of course, she didn't share that. And the last day of the school at the very end, she came up to me and she said, I want to talk to you about something. And I'm like, oh, my God, she's hated the school. And she told me, she said, you know, I'm one of the people that you talked about, you know, yesterday. I'm vaccine hesitant and I've always been in and she had some issues that one of her kids had and totally understandable. Um, But she said, I learned so much here and I'm going to make sure that my kids get vaccinated for HPV. She has, I think, two younger kids that are still kind of in the age range to get it. And, And she said, I totally get it. And it just goes to show when people get the right information and also in the right setting. And Mm -hmm. I think um, we've also started um, behaving in a way that we're we're going um, around the HPV vaccine with kid gloves. And so as a patient advocate, you know, I want to share the realities of what can happen to people who have uh, HPV related cancers because I think people don't understand they you, you know I had a legislator in DC tell me well you had cervical cancer and you seem fine And so then I started telling her, like, I've seen fine, but this is this is what I've been through. This is what I have to look at every single day when I get dressed. Now, like I said, I had, you know, great health care. I had a great medical team. But the point is to prevent it and not even having to go through it. You know, I'm lucky. I'm blessed that I, I made it through it. But there's so many people who don't. I mean, I recently um, had to start, you know, getting extra therapy sessions for all the people that we've lost since I've been doing this work as a patient advocate, because it's very hard. You go close to the people um, and, and, and I'm always thinking they're going to make it always. And the truth is not all of them do. And so those are the realities that I want parents to truly understand and I think for people out there to kind of get at least the beginning of an understanding of that, watching the documentary Someone You Love, I think is a great way to start with that. That's how Absolutely. I first came to know about you, Tamika, was watching that. And I've seen it three or four times now at this point. And you don't end that with a dry eye. Uh, it doesn't really matter who you are. Um, and and I understand now you're working on another documentary, and I'm sure that a lot of what you've been saying is going to be in that documentary. Is there more that you'd like to tell us about the the angle that you're taking in your new one? So, and I I am working on a documentary. My background is in television production, and I've you know worked on documentaries before, um, and I was so fortunate to be included in Someone You Love, and so thankful for that experience because it's helped share even more of our stories and more of you know the great work that we're trying to do in eradicating um, HPV. So the documentary that I'm working on is. Is in similar vein that we'll be talking about HPV, why this silly stigma um, just shouldn't happen, how most of the population um, is infected with HPV, and also taking a look at what happens to women. We'll touch on the other HPV-related cancers, but what happens to women who get diagnosed early? Because there's a misnomer of uh, the population who thinks, well, they got diagnosed early. They, it, it, they caught it early. They're fine. 
they're absolutely fine. There's a 30-some-year-old woman who lives in Indianapolis, Indiana. Her cancer was stage three. Um, but her lymphatic systems, I can't remember right off how many lymph nodes she had removed. Her lymphatic system is so messed up from her cancer surgery and treatment that she has to wear compression garments from head to toe for the rest of her life. She has to give herself self massages every day. She has to go in for professional lymphatic massages. I think on a monthly basis, she gets reoccurring infections when the lymphatic system does not work that makes her go into hospital stays. And so these are the things that people do not see when they think of a cervical cancer as an easy cancer or a cancer that someone brought upon themselves. You see people who um, did everything they did right and technology is great we're so thankful to have the pap test we're so thankful for the hpv test but there are women who fall through the cracks and sometimes those cancers don't go away and they live with the cancer and then it's knowing that they'll eventually die from the cancer i can't fathom what that would be like you know we talk about someone you love and i i mean even having met kelly you saw when i met kelly and the documentary someone you love I never thought that Kelly would die. And it was so painful, so painful to lose Kelly. Kelly was an incredible woman who would have made an incredible advocate. And it makes me sad that Kelly is no longer here with us. And so we're getting to the point where we have to do something. We have to. And so for me, I want to show those voices and I want to um, empower the public and knowing that this is something that we all can do right now to make a difference. And it's as easy as vaccinating the next generation. Absolutely. Uh, So I'm always very impressed by what you've been doing with Survivor. Can you tell everybody just sort of what are the pieces of Survivor and how does it work and and who's helping you out with it and and what all have you done? Sure. Um, It's funny, you know, sometimes I feel like it's completely taken over my life. It's a volunteer run nonprofit, but I I feel like it's my second job. Actually, I feel like it's my first job because I feel like everything comes in second (laughs) to Survivor. And uh, probably my husband and my stepdaughter feel the same way. Um, So I'm working on that for 2018. But the truth is Survivor, um, I, you know, I get teary eyed thinking about it. I may not have physical children, but Survivor is my child. Survivor has helped me kind of make sense of all of this that has happened to me. And so Survivor came out of one, selfish reasons, because I didn't want to be alone. Back in the arc ages of 2001, I you know, thought that I was all alone. There was Christine Bays and a few other people. Um, but I was like, gosh, there has to be more people who've experienced cervical cancer. Um, why can't we rally together and get a walk and do things like that, which we did do. We had the first national walk for cervical cancer in Washington, D.C. We don't do them as often as we used to, but we're going to be doing them again um, this year. Um, so we have our pat rally and run 
that's uh, the name of our walks. Um, we also have survivor school, which is kind of like our big thing. I had women who would come to me and they say, you know what, I want to share my story, but I don't know everything about HPV. I don't know everything about cervical cancer. I don't even want to talk about the vaccine because that just scares me and people get, you know, ugly on social media. I don't want to do it. And so we created survivor school as an advocacy retreat, an educational tool to arm women, patient advocates with everything they needed to be able to talk about this stuff. Because if you're going to talk about HPV, you need to know how to talk about the HPV vaccine effectively. You also need to um, learn how to deal with social media bullying, which does happen. And so we we have that. I'm so thankful that there's so many people, um, experts in the HPV cervical cancer world who give their time to come and speak at Survivor School. I mean, we've had... um, Dr. Philip Castle, Debbie Saslow from the American Cancer Society, Mark Einstein. I mean, we've had like great people. Hopefully, you know, Nathan, we can get you guys to come and maybe even do a live podcast from there. We love that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We'd love for you to come and do that. Um, But so Survivor School is our big thing. And then from there, we have a huge social media presence and I have a love hate relationship with social media I love it because it's the way like you can get instantaneous you know new you like know immediately what's going on but it's also a playground for people to share um you know, it's the buzzword now, fake news. And (laughs) a lot of times they're clickbait articles and people don't even read the articles um, uh, before sharing it. And so that becomes the gospel. That becomes the truth. One of the the biggest things on social media that we come up against is the the headline that says leading researcher, leading Gardasil researcher comes clean about the HP vaccine. And and I actually, you you know, oh, (laughs) I'm trying not to get on my soapbox, but I have. This is a place for soapboxes. This is basically a digital soapbox. It is a giant soapbox. Jump up. (laughs) I have friends who were there for me. I mean, when I opened my eyes in the hospital, there's some of the, you know, I had a crowd of people standing there. You know, the doctor's like, you all can't be here. I mean, they prayed for me and, you know, they know my story. They know that I'm not this bad person that was sleeping around with the, you know, the football team and this person and and, and not that that stuff even matters, but they will get on social media and they will share that particular article and they'll tag me in and they say, what are your thoughts on this? (laughs) My thoughts are all four letter words. (laughs) Exactly. And I mean, I have a friend who's a nurse and she said, there's no way I would give my children. She's got three children. She's like, there's no way I would give my children this vaccine. I've just heard too many bad things about it. Too many people have died from it. I'm just not doing it. So, She's highly intelligent, well-respected, but now she's telling, you know, her 500 plus people that are, however many people she has on her Facebook page and Instagram, how she feels about this vaccine. So those followers are like, she's a nurse. She must know what she's talking about. Now they're going to take that and they're going to share it with their friends and then so on and so on and so on. And so really, we also learn how to 
combat against those types of things. Now, in some cases, you're just not going to win, but we give them effective tools, how to deal with it, how to use their personal stories to say, hey, did you look here? Did you, you know, you're saying these many women died from it. Where'd you get that source? How can we prove Mm -hmm. it? And so we've gotten really good at working together collectively because I I remind the ladies that we are small but mighty and you know the thing that the anti-vaxxers have going for them is that they are well organized and so what I'm trying to get people to realize is that we have to be well organized now we don't have to sling mud and you know get dirty but we always have to go in with credible resources and knowing what we're talking about what is factual and what is untrue when it comes to the HPV vaccine. And it is really just incredible to me that we have this unique opportunity to wipe out this virus that causes these cancers. But because of SEX, Uh people have lost, lost it. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting how it ties in when we talk about the vaccine and the anti-vaccine pushback, how that ties in to uh, the stigma that we've been talking about because you know most of these groups they're against all vaccines but the HPV has a special place uh, for them that they target and stigmatize and draw into the whole um, kind of stigmatizing sex conversation and all that to make this into a boogeyman when the reality is and it's worth you know saying it again this is an exquisitely safe vaccine it is the mm-hmm. the the testing that's been done on this in tens of thousands and the in the post uh licensure monitoring that's been done the studies have been done by independent groups sorry i'm gonna get on my soapbox again <laughs> the study done by independent groups the studies done by government groups just broad studying for um, different kinds of outcomes, uh, studies that are done when individual concerns pop up or anecdotes pop up or are reported um, have all shown this to be extremely safe. There's zero reason to not get this vaccine uh, compared to other vaccines uh, when you have any concerns about safety because this is an extremely safe vaccine that saves a ton of lives. And one of the things that Karen and I will often do is compare the deaths from cervical cancer and the other HPV cancers to deaths from other vaccine preventable diseases. And they kind of, you know, Karen made this great, this great graphic that just shows this huge kind of amount of surface area of deaths from HPV compared to smaller areas of, uh, of like um, other diseases. Measles, yeah. yeah. When you think about it that way, it's pretty mind boggling that people don't just line up and beat down doors for this right. shot. And, right. it, and it makes the shot a no brainer. Mm-hmm. You know, thank you so much for sharing all of this great information, Tamika, and for sharing your story and for being out there and doing such amazing work, uh, but also for joining us today. So I just want our audience members, if they want to know more about Survivor or to get in touch with you, where can they look for you? Thank you so much for having me. This was great. And thanks for the work you do. Um, Your audience can find me at 
Survivor. That's our website, C-E-R-V-I-V-O-R.org. We're all over social media on Facebook, facebook.com backslash Survivor, C-E-R-V-I-V-O-R. And we're on Instagram and Twitter and Pinterest at I am survivor. Um, and we love anyone out there, whether it's cervical cancer or some other HPV related cancer to join us. You are more than welcome. Excellent. And you know, um, Nathan and I always like to leave a call for action. I think survivor is a great website. And I think the call to action is to go check out survivor. And I also like another website people can check out if they want to know more about, um, HPV vaccines. I, I always recommend the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia has um, a look at each vaccine and their look at HPV vaccine is excellent. Um, do you have any suggestions, Nathan? Well, I was just wondering, Tamika, if you know where someone could watch um, someone you'd love, if that's uh, available online, if or how that would work at this point. Yeah, someone you love. Um, there's a there have a website, and I believe it's someoneyoulove.com, and you can go and you can get uh, you can purchase it. I think it's twenty five dollars to watch it at home, and then if you want to do a bigger theatrical type of viewing, um, there's a fee for that. But there are actually a few states where they have licensing deals, Maryland. Indiana, I can't remember the other states where you can actually watch it for free. And it's definitely, I would say, especially during the month of January for cervical cancer awareness, do it. But you can watch it anytime. Another thing you can do is check out our first ever uh, Voices for Vaccines Vax Talk podcast, which in which we talk with the director of uh, Someone You Love, and uh, which is Frederic Luminaire. Luminaire. Did I say that wrong? Sorry. Yeah. And Christine Bays. Who was in it? So it was a great podcast. One of my yeah, we love doing it. Absolutely, thank you. Well, I think that's all for today, folks. Um, Thanks everybody for joining us. Uh, Please subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to Vax Talk and a bunch of other places wherever you find your podcasts. My name is Karen Ernst, and I'm the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find Voices for Vaccines at VoicesForVaccines.org. And I'm Nathan Boonstra. I'm general pediatrician at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines. You can find me on Twitter at PedsGeekMD and also on Facebook and my blog, PedsGeekMD.com. And don't forget that January is Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm sorry, I just messed that up, so I'm going to talk a little bit, because I got lost right in the middle of the Do you want me to go back where I say that again and not mess up Frederick Lumiere's name? No, I want to keep that. Oh, I want you to call him Luminaire, because that's... Luminary. Luminary, Frederick, whatever. I used to call him that. Don't feel bad. The Luminary, yeah. (laughs) Um, All right, I'm going back into character. This can be our stinger now. (laughs) Can you put this as a stinger? That'd be great. I wish. Oh, you can't? Oh, stingers are great. Thank you.